And when you watch it, it'll yeah. feel like slipping on an old pair of jeans. Well, you know, Sidney Lumet was born uh, on the same day that I was, uh, spiritually, June 25th. Not the same year, of course. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You have the same birthday. Yes. Wow. Us okay. and uh, Orwell. George Orwell, same day? Yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious. That's a pretty good Expl- one. Explains so much. It explains why you're fiery, why you're, you know, so politically motivated, you know? Something about that day. Yeah, well, the, the day Custer died, everyone gets a little charged up, uh, you know, on the anniversary of Little Bighorn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I got Alex Rodriguez, which explains why I'm a showboater. And, you know, good, but kind of a dick, you know? The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. I tell the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the hot. That's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and as always, I'm here with... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts picks a topic for the week and the other two pick movies in response to that topic. It was my topic this week. It's episode 42. And today we're talking about oil. You know, a lot of people talking about gas these days, talking about oil. So I thought we could capitalize on that, you know, like good exploitation filmmakers and uh, come up with something here. But I was thinking more generally, right, the petroleum industry as it is has kind of grown along with cinema over the last 120 years or so. So there is a, a, you know, a symbolic relationship there, and uh, well, we'll get into it, and and I think we'll have a lot of fun today splashing around in that sweet crude oil. Texas tea. (laughs) (laughs) So we've also got, yeah, I guess like two different looks here. So let's uh, <laughs> let's dive into those two different approaches to our to our topic. Andy, why don't you tell us about the film you brought first? Well, my film has been on uh, my watch list, I guess, my queue for a very long time. Um, I first was introduced to it because of a conversation I was having with Alex Cox, the director Alex Cox. And we had for a little while this sort of uh, like, uh, you know, kind of like our own little personal Netflix uh, together. We would send movies to each other through the mail. We would send like Blu-rays to each other. And I had sent him a film by directo Francesco Rossi about the First World War, one of my, I think, favorite anti-war films, a film called Many Wars Ago. And he had never seen it, and he was really struck by it. And then he told me that one of his all-time favorite films was the film that I chose, uh, The Matei Affair from 1972. 
Now, this is a film that has a very interesting construction, which we're, we're, we're certainly going to get into today. But on the surface, uh, it is a docudrama, a retelling of the life and death of a man by the name of Enrico Mattei, who was an Italian politician slash, uh, I guess, energy czar or guru, if you will, who ran the ENI, the Italian sort of state-owned energy company. And um, I I really sort of uh, don't want to try to dive too deeply into explaining (laughs) all this because it's going to start to sound like a Wikipedia page. But essentially, (laughs) he was uh, a a guy who who ran this uh, like state-run oil and gas consortium in Italy. And he was a very sort of forward-thinking guy. And uh, he died in a fiery plane crash in 1962, which was initially ruled an accident. However, most people who really sort of knew who this man was and had been following the press felt that something wasn't quite right. And many believed that there was actually a conspiracy to assassinate him, that this plane crash was actually an act of sabotage. So this is where Rossi's film picks up. It opens with this this very fiery plane crash and then tries to reconstruct the events, uh, investigate the conspiracy through a sort of Citizen Kane-like flashback structure where we get lots of vignettes and images throughout the life of this man, Enrico Mattei, played, of course, by Rossi's muse, the one and only Gian Maria Volante. It is, I think, uh, a remarkable film, and I feel so shitty for having taken this long to see it because I think it's a really interesting film. As I mentioned, it has a very unique uh, construction as well because the film also features director Rossi himself in the film investigating the disappearance of a friend of his while he was working on this film, while Rossi was making the film, uh, a a journalist friend of his, Mauro de Mauro was his name, also disappeared. And many believe, though it's never been solved, he himself was also assassinated in his, or through his connection to the Matei affair. So um, it's, it has, obviously fictional scenes, but it also has, you know, recreations of Rossi's investigation and some interviews that Rossi himself conducted with people who, uh, you know, experienced these events as they happened. So there's sort of two investigations taking place in the film. We have Rossi exploring Matei's death and also trying to come to terms with perhaps even his own involvement in the disappearance of Mauro de Mauro, his friend, the journalist. So that is the film that I brought to the table. Thank you very much. Ryan, what did you bring? Well, when I first was told about the topic, 
I was wondering, oh, like, you know, not a lot of things are coming to mind. What, what could I bring to the table? But then as I went on a deep dive into the history of oil and gasoline in cinema, I realized it's a pretty diverse collection of films. And I reached a point of just total option paralysis. I was looking at so many different things. I was looking at Louisiana Story, the Robert Flaherty movie. I was looking at Attack the Gas Station, a weird late 90s film. I even found my way to um, uh, Joseph Losey's first film, which was produced Produced by uh, an oil company called Pete Rolium and his cousins, which I would highly recommend people check out. It is a very cursed bit of animated material produced for the World's Fair uh, that was trying to introduce children to the the wonders of petroleum and the technological future that they had to look forward to. But you know, it's been a, it's been a busy couple of weeks for me. I, I'm sort of I've just finished up programming a youth f- film festival that uh, I'm involved with and. You know, I, I decided to sort of take it easy, and, go, and once I saw we were watching the Matei affair, I'm like, I'm gonna go for something maybe a little bit lighter, something that's a little less demanding. Um, so I found my way back to 1979, where we've been for the past two weeks, and back in California <laughs> with the 1979 film Gas Pump girls directed by joel bender when i first pulled up the film i was like oh i don't know sexploitation like is that what we're feeling this week and when i popped it on and i saw the credit cinematography by nicholas von sternberg the son of you guessed it joseph von sternberg i knew okay this is the one i gotta find out more about this gas pump girls is so it lives up to its title of what you might expect, uh, a late 70s exploitation drive-in fair uh, with the title Gas Pump Girls would be about. It follows a group of high school girls who have just graduated, they've got the summer ahead to look forward to, and June, uh, her uncle, her salacious Uncle Joe, is... Things aren't going great. Uh, he's in somewhat of a good burger situation. His, you know, rinky-dink little gas station has uh, sort of fallen into disrepair. It's littered with garbage, covered in bugs, uh, and he's not doing a whole lot to, to maintain the upkeep. While across the street, there's Pyramid Gas Station, the shiny corporate gas station that's beating them on the prices and certainly beating them on the amount of customers that are coming through. This all becomes a bit too much for him when he gets a notice of uh, not meeting his his payment deadlines and uh, he kind of gets overwhelmed and has a heart attack. So it's up for the girls, June and her other gal pals, to step in and rehab this this gas station to take over and they turn it into Joe's Super Duper. And the rest of the film is essentially a competition between Joe's Super Duper, the new gas station run by the girls, uh, as they're stealing all the customers away from Mr. Friendly's uh, Operation Pyramid gas station. And they have they come up with multiple ways to sort of attract uh, the clientele, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, that's the gist of the film. It's, it's the type of drive-in fare that, you know, about halfway through certainly runs out of a lot of ideas, so they, they, they fill a lot of those holes with uh, a single music number, which is quite bizarre, and then also um, some, some very indelicate and poorly thought-out uh, racist caricatures that sort of, like, color the, the final climax of the film. But overall, I walked away rather surprised. It's not as raunchy as I thought it would be. Uh, it's generally good vibes, pretty pleasant. But I think, you know, there's a lot to talk about. So that is Gas Pump Girls from 1979. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it strikes me that we have one film that's, you know, really gets to the heart of 
the oil industry and its intersection with power and politics and geopolitics. And on the other hand, we have the sort of, you know, consumer-facing side of uh, the oil industry. And yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect from this week. Thinking about, you know, oil-related movies, well, there's a lot because obviously where there's oil, there's money. And where there's money, there's conflict and things that make good movie topics, right? So uh, I appreciated uh, not just the, the high-low energy of this double, but also the the micro and the macro and the sort of like behind the scenes and in front of the scenes sort of vibe going on. And now, thanks to Gas Pump Girls, I have a whole new vernacular to apply to uh, oil and gasoline <laughs> uh, of the sexual variety. So I feel like very true. my brain has been enlarged uh, because of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, all the innuendo uh, that was used it, at times, I might say cleverly. I think so. In the case of, of Gas Pump Girls, uh, I don't think I'm ever going to, you know, uh, in, insert a gas nozzle into my, my tank uh, the same way. <laughs> Ever again, purely innocently, virginally. You know, no, no, no. Uh, after after the smorgasbord of a very licentious wordplay that we were treated to in in Gas Pump Girls. And it's interesting how both of these films, at times, are very much about the the business of oil and the sort of orchestrated crises that happen with oil, right? Like gas pump girls actually involves like an orchestrated gas crisis. Yeah. Supply chain sabotage. Absolutely. And then there's obviously quite a lot of, um, that being hinted at throughout the Matei affair where there's both, you know, him, Matei himself, you know, trying to take the reins from the, the seven sisters, the people that are running, you know, the gas corporations, but then thinking about how they have to stop him as opposed to controlling the situation and orchestrating how gas will will flow around the world but they do yeah they're they're not so different after all (laughs) no i mean i will i will grant you that i will grant you that but i i should say you know before we even really get into it and i'm 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 certainly uh you know in a respect a fan of both of these films But, you know, I I did what I I really like to do. Uh, I don't always get to do it, but I I try to, as often as possible, watch the movies, you know, immediately uh, Mm -hmm. back to back together. And and this week uh, I watched, you know, Gas Pump Girls after the Matei Affair. And, uh, man, at times I felt uh, so obscene after what I had witnessed in the Matei affair, which has an almost kind of spiritual quality to its approach. Uh, and then the, yeah, complete 180 about face from the 
I would say the get go with Gas Pump Girls uh, in that opening sequence of the 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 high school graduation where a couple of street toughs do a prank that results in in several of the young coeds, the female coeds, having their graduation gowns ripped off in front of everyone uh, to see that they're they're wearing only the skimpiest underwear and no bras under their graduation gowns. So I was primed, as you could say, primed at the pump with, <laughs> with this film. Yeah, I mean, yeah, th- absolutely. One of the films we watched tonight uh, is extremely thoughtful, and there's another film that we watched that is uh, rather thoughtless at times. And it was, you know, something I was nervous about uh, going, like, in selecting it. I'm like, God, sex comedy from the late 70s. Like, there's a lot of stuff that comes with this territory. You know, things that are played off as humor, as you said, that opening prank that are, by today's standards, just sex crimes, you know, that are <laughs> simply played off as just like something to giggle at and um yeah there is uh despite the fact that the film isn't particularly raunchy uh it is quite obscene at its heart i think (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah no i'm super glad though that you picked the matea fair because i've never seen a francesco rossi film and my limited understanding of him apart from like knowing a lot of the films in his filmography was i've always thought of him as like he looks like a combination between you, Andy, and Ernest Borgnine. He looks like he could be your grandfather in certain respects. Yeah, as a fan of both of those people, well, I should say, and my grandfather's. Well, I'll take that as a compliment, Ryan. It I is will. a compliment. No, I've always been very attracted to his cinema because I'm like, oh, this looks like a cool guy that's got Andy's energy, you know. And I do think that he lived up to that superficial expectation I had of him. This was a film that felt. You know, it's it's playing with all the kind of stuff I love, you know, that it's it's a documentary hybrid, a film where he occasionally injects himself into it. It's really incendiary. It's trying to detail a political event, but also it has all of these leftist sympathies that he likes to have fun with and he doesn't treat it as something that's overly self-serious. You know, I should say when I was like younger and, and coming of age as a as a young like film student, uh and I'd seen a few of Rossi's other films, like he was someone that I, you know, really admired. And, and, and I, I, you know, went through that phase. We, we sort of talked about this a little bit as well with like Costa Gavras, I think a, a sort of similar spirit there with a lot of Costa Gavras's work. And they were somewhat contemporaries, I believe as well, you know, making films at the, at the same time. And, you know, uh, other films in that same caliber, you know, the, the kind of filmmakers that at a, at a, at a certain time, you know, were making very overtly political films, very overtly, you know, political films that, that also, you know, had the, the shape of an investigation film as well. And, uh, you know, so, so though they are making these films that, you know, could in lesser hands become these like very kind of heavy handed polemics and, and, you know, uh, statements, you know, soapbox films, good filmmakers like Rossi and like Costa Gavras are also able to shape films that are quite simply engrossing and thrilling and moving uh they're 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 the perfect blend of political cinema and i would say you know like 
entertaining movies. I mean, they really are like a great combination of those two things. I will say I'm really glad that I didn't just stumble into a movie theater to see this film, though, and was able to watch it in 2022 with access to the internet. Uh, just because it was about 15 minutes in where I realized like, okay, I need to read a little bit about Enrico <laughs> Mattei <laughs> before I like sit this one through if I'm going to like receive any benefit from it. Uh, but I do think dramatically, yes, it's still rather compelling and especially formally. I like too how it's just like straight up acknowledging that it's doing Citizen Kane. There's a yeah. bit in the beginning where there's an American journalist and, and he's like, Janet, this is Donald. Well, I'm afraid there's nothing to do here. Just bits and pieces scattered all over the place. All the priest had to bless was just 20 pounds of flesh and bones. Listen, New York called. The cover story's out. They just want to know who Enrico Mattei was in 500 words. Yes. You see? Dead, this Matei is only worth 500 words. And they're setting up that expectation. And and yeah, I think what Rossi does with it, the, the fragmentation, the weaving, the going on here uh, is, is really impressive. And it just sort of reinforces uh, something I've always thought and was also demonstrated by William Friedkin in The People versus Paul Crump, which is if you mm. combine Citizen Kane and good documentary work, uh, it kicks ass. Yeah. Uh, and I like really, yeah, I really, you know, got into this film. And I actually, uh, I think it was like a year or so ago, I watched Lucky Luciano, which is a similarly constructed film where it's, constantly flashing back and forth and John Maria Volante is Luciano and it's you know I don't want to say they're identical but they basically are you know just with different subjects in the way that he's digging into uh these these real people and I think in general what I love about these films is their ambiguity and kind of like yeah, there are obvious sympathies that Rossi has, but in terms of the subject matter he's dealing with, it's never clear-cut because nothing in, in the world is, and especially nothing in post-war Italy. Mm -hmm. No, And that's the thing, you know, this, this isn't film that seeks to, you know, sanctify this character of Enrico Mattei. It's a film that is certainly indignant with what might have happened to this man, but but it does try to show him as someone sort of problematic, you know, that, that though he may have certain great ideals, uh, he isn't a perfect human being, you know? And, and I think it's the mark of Rossi's intelligence, you know, that he isn't simply going to make some sort of uh, you know, propaganda piece that's about, you know, this amazing human being that was perfect in every way, you know, and if only he'd lived, how much better the world would be. You know, he 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 paints like Wells does with Kane, you know, a picture of a man that has a lot of warts and uh, you know, may have good things, but but like all humans, also has some questionable uh character flaws uh to say nothing of perhaps maybe his flirtation with Mussolini's fascist regime but 
you know, I think that Rossi handles it again with a lot of nuance and a lot of care. Yeah, one thing that that struck me in that regard is that's kind of like a larger theme of the film is this milieu, right, being, yes, post-war Italy, but the implications of, you know, what did all these people do during the war and before the war, how all of these people are, like, have to to shape-shift through these, like, devastating world events, you know? And there's a lot of conversations in this film about, you know, people's pasts and things like that. And in the case of Matei, right, he worked for the fascist government, then he became a partisan, then he became, you know, the, the state oil guy. Uh, and he's, you know, he's all of these things, right? And there mm -hmm. are other characters slipping in and out of uh, different roles when it's convenient, politically or otherwise, right? Weathering the storm of, of the Second World War and all that, you know, that implies. Yeah, and we even, like, see that directly. Like, we see Rossi um, grappling with that very idea, uh, you know, himself directly when we have a, a scene at a certain point in the film where I believe it's like the first moment where suddenly we have the director, you know, and he's sitting in a room and he's going through archival footage and he's even like talking about a, a political party. You know, he's talking about the Christian Democrats of who Matei was a, a member, you know, of this party. And he's like, you know, how do we keep up with the games that these people played? You know, that they're always shifting their ideals. And it yes. seems every couple of years they, they're, you know, first they're a part of the center and then they're, le you know, leftist in their politics and their alignments. And then suddenly back to the center again. And it's sort of like, what do we make of something like this? And and that's also, I think, his question of, of Rossi. Like, what do we make of a person like this who might have... Uh, <laughs> to put it like like flights of fancy where suddenly he's you know he's working with them and i think he he uses the words of matei to on a certain level like answer that there there's a moment where matei has been sort of called out on that you know and the fact that he has worked with fascism and fascists directly and indirectly and and this was you know from what i researched like an actual, you know, documented statement where he said, well, I, I use political parties the way I use a taxi cab. I get in, I watch the meter, I pay the fare, and then I leave. You know, this idea that <laughs> that you can sort of, you know, use a party or you can use um, even more, you know, broadly a constituency to perhaps get something you want, get somewhere you need to go without moving in, I guess, and setting up shop, you know? And I, I think that's that's the approach that that he is sort of really trying to pin on on the Matei that that he or the portrait of Matei that he's he's trying to craft here. It's that, you know, there may be questions of his specific political allegiances, but Rossi is encouraging us to look at these people and these political parties in a much bigger way, you know, like Okay, but but in spite of what a newspaper might have wanted to print or, you know, what what political parties membership card he held at a certain point, when we try to look back on a life, when we try to look back on the work of somebody, you know, is it a more utilitarian approach? Did they do more than more good than than harm or did they at least try to do more good than harm? And I think overall, that's certainly the case he's trying to make with Matei mm -hmm. here. 
I also think one of the most incredible things he does in the film relating to that investigation of Matei is placing a great deal of importance on all of the real life locations that these things were occurring in. And the film has some like really exceptional location work, but I also think that in terms of trying to craft a portrait of a man and a man in history and a historical figure, Rossi understands that in order to address that you also need to think about the larger like machinations going on around this man. So when we're seeing him at all of these places around Italy and then around the world, when we're seeing him at different like oil derricks, you're reminded of like, here's a man who's like really changing things on a global level. But at the same time, he is just one man in these giant places with all of these other people involved. Speeding through the skies in his uh, personal yeah. jet plane, <laughs> just I mean, and and that's really you know, the 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 rope, if you will, that was used to to hang him. I mean, the film mm-hmm. opens with his his personal jet crashing, and that's when the introduction really gets gets introduced here. For again, those who haven't read the Wikipedia <laughs> or whatever on <laughs> on Enrico Mattei, uh, his his plane crashed in in Italy when he was returning from one of these you know visits, one of these 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 power brokering deals that he was making, and quickly we we see a a point of contention in this crash that's that's almost immediately been ruled an accident you know the plane bad weather and it just crashed into the ground and we have a witness who says that he saw the sky ablaze that he saw an explosion in the air and this is like the 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 point that is used by Rossi to and others of course to, mm-hmm. to problematize this ruling, you know? How does a plane explode in midair if there isn't some sort of foul play, especially when the authorities themselves are, are, are going to great lengths to insist in their reconstruction of the events that, no, this plane struck the ground. But Rossi gives us very gruesome details that that show this this cataclysmic uh, event to be far more uh, horrific and far more explosive than a plane simply crashing into the ground. I mean, they they talk about body parts being all over the place. You know, pieces found strewn all over this field. You know, and we see the corpse of Matei, and and it's basically just like what do they say, like twenty pounds of meat that they've been able yeah. to like scrape up <laughs> off the. The, this this massive field. It was like the only thing that was completely recognizable was one of his like severed arms that still had the wristwatch on it. Oh, I love the barrage of facts. And to circle back to something you said, Andy, one thing I read in Rosenbaum's review of this at the time is he talks about how Rossi constructs the the public version of Matei and and that's like the details the data the recreations like like you said like this this stuff's all on record you know we're not seeing his private life at all we just see him in relation to work and in relation to yeah the these events as as Rossi reconstructs them and I love as you guys are pointing out at this this you know crash scene all these details this like just thick layer of, you know, interviews going on and, and uh, forensic analysis and, and everything just, you know, like 
I love that. I'm a Michael Mann guy. I want like <laughs> the barrage of details. Yeah. I want to start piecing this together. Yeah, you it know? starts unfolding like a really good procedural. Yeah. You know, we have this this data. We have this information. We have all this evidence, and we have a conclusion made with this evidence that doesn't sit well, that doesn't sit right with us. Mm-hmm. Not yeah, I mean, at I think all. isn't the very first thing we see, like all of these people like moving around in the mud at the wreck site and there's like a ticker tape at the bottom of just facts being presented to us to, to sort of place us in, a, as investigators in this world. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this is what like launches then, as you point out, Marsh, this, this journey into really like the working life of, of this person because, you know, this isn't uh, like Cain on the flip side, you know? If you think about it, it's very, like, much the inverse then of Cain. Because yeah. in, in Citizen Cain, we, we, we actually don't get treated to a ton of his, his working life. We really get the, the, the personal failures, the emotional foibles, and, and the, the affairs, the, the, the private affairs, and all that stuff of, of this man. Um, but here, I mean, yes, it is uh, then going to be about two hours of, like, watching John Maria Volante in his jet, like going to meeting after meeting after meeting. And I mean, uh, this, this is a sort of overwhelming amount of information. Trying to keep up with what's happening in a single scene, let alone the entire film, sometimes like my head was, was spinning because as I'm writing notes, it's just like almost every other line was something I was like, oh my God, that's that's great. That's brilliant. You know, like totally. it's so important. Like that's this right here is the thesis of the film. And then a scene later, it's like, no, this is the thesis of the film. This is where it really all comes together. This is the moment they decided to kill this man, you know, but it's yeah. like, it isn't just one. I mean, it's just a moment after moment. This guy was a whirlwind. And I think there's a really good sort of visual metaphor that early on in the film. And again, I really like don't want this episode to just become uh, a whole bunch of really boring details about the specifics of the the Italian uh, attempts to rebuild their their crumbling infrastructure in the energy field. But uh, you know, one of the first like big, I think, kind of controversial events that that we see is uh, Mattei, you know, going to this very poor section of Italy uh, immediately after the war, you know, in the rubble of the Second World War and trying to use methane gas to sort of redevelop this this very impoverished section. You know, in short, if you had to sort of sum up Matei's project, you know, his ideas, it's that, you know, Energy leads to independence. It leads to development. It leads to the betterment of society for everyone. You know, to power our lives powers innovation. It powers creativity. It powers life, quite simply. And so, you know, this is really the the driving force for him, among others, you know, uh, that we can get into as well. But, but you know, here Matei goes to this, this impoverished area 
And he discovers through, you know, work that have been done that there's rich methane that can be used, you know, to, to make money for the state, to, to help the people, you know, enrich their lives and all this stuff. But in order for him to get anyone to be interested in investing in methane, he sort of manipulates these findings to imply that there might be a lot of oil under the ground. And oil seems to be the obsession for energy companies and, and for corporations and that sort of thing. And there's this beautiful shot of, you know, them building this, this like methane, uh, you know, again, the terminology for me. Pump. Yeah, pump, you know. <laughs> and, and they have all these like working people around, you know, these very like Italian neo-realist faces because Rossi is using a lot of non-professionals, especially for, you know, the poor people of Italy. Like that's who Rossi casts mm -hmm. to be in it, you know. So you have these faces of just workers and Mattei positioned among them looking at this pump that's going to bring methane to this area that's going to start rejuvenating this land quite literally and we see as the methane gas is lit and it creates this massive massive like fire into the air from this pump and and everyone seems to light up I mean he is fiery he is the human embodiment, if you will, of energy. One thing I learned reading Melville on Melville is that Volante was, you know, uh, a communist, but also a nationalist. And Melville hated Volante for this reason. He's very <laughs> French, you know. And he talks, and he says in his interview, like, Volante thought everything Italian was superior, you know? <laughs> and and I couldn't help but think about that in the way it's reflected in Mattei, because ultimately Mattei's mm -hmm. project is a liberal nationalist project. He wants the energy to benefit the people. He wants to have energy prices low and he wants to, you know, also break the US led mm -hmm. hegemony uh, of the oil companies. And, and obviously, this is uh, a very popular thing, you know, to do in Italy at that time, right? Like, uh, and, and again, this leads to, you know, trouble down the line in the geopolitical world because he starts forging economic alliances with Algeria and Libya and other, uh, you know. The USSR. Yeah, the USSR and other up-and-coming nations, you know. So uh, just thinking back about that, yeah, that quote about Volante, I was thinking, yes, like, this guy believes in Italian excellence, you know? He wants to get that swagger back, you know? And Absolutely. Not in a fascist way, but in a good liberal way, you know? Yeah. And that's what's interesting, too, also just, like, thinking about the large scheme of things is, yeah, this film's also about fighting, right, like, the global private corporations detaching from society, you know? Like, the idea that the resources should benefit everyone. Like, that idea is going out the door. 
at this moment Mm -hmm. and he's holding on to that idea you know Mm -hmm. yeah that was something that really surprised me about the film was both like that being his motivation as an oil man and just the idea of an oil man having like anti-colonial sympathies which he does very explicitly address throughout the film about being against involvement in Algeria and then again visiting all these other like up-and-coming nations that is like something that subverted my expectations let's just say if I went into you know an Italian 70s film about about an oil man from from the post-war you know the last thing I would think was that that guy would be you know anti-colonial and I think that in a way Rossi highlights that to give a little extra bit of weight to his argument about trying to detach from U.S. strangleholds over the world market of oil and trying to like separate from something that is like the established dominant norm in the industry. Chi si occupa di petrolio fa politica, politica estera precisamente. È il monopolio dei petrolieri americani che porta la nostra attività a queste conseguenze. Si parla da sempre di una guerra del petrolio. Questa espressione non l'ho inventata io. But what I also love is how he's just a paradox because you could read almost anything he says like grandstanding at any point. At the end of the day, he's a capitalist, you know? Totally. At the end of the day, he's about money and oil. So he can say, yeah, I'm making these alliances for ideological reasons, but the facts are he's making them for economic reasons, you know, as much as anything, right? And that's what I love is how the film like relishes in not necessarily his hypocrisy, but just he cannot be pinned down because he was actually doing X, Y, Z while also saying X, Y, Z. But yes, uh, just like, you know, a thorny, a thorny man in a thorny world, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I should qualify by saying I didn't walk away thinking like, oh, wow, oil man, like real leftist sympathizer. I was more just... You're right, though, and and the film gives us extensive lectures and rebuttals of Matei talking about the cause, you know? Mm -hmm. like Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on a certain level, like, I I think Matei kind of represents... A phrase that's that's used, you know, a lot in neoliberal circles today, you know, this sort of like capitalism with a conscience, right? Capitalism with a conscience. But but in Matei's case, like, I mean, he, he really seems to be the real deal here. I mean, he does believe that that this is a kind of thing can, that can can benefit everyone, you know, that everyone's life could be improved. You know, he sees energy and energy independence as as a way for, you know, nations to develop, to become great, you know? He wants everyone to benefit from the success to a certain extent, right? It's like he, he's sort of saying, like, the goddamn Americans shouldn't be the only ones making money here, yeah. right? You know, that everyone should benefit. The producers and the consumers should benefit equally from the fact that, like, we need this shit to live and and everyone should be able to make something from it but but in his case you know it's that he's sort of he's sort of the guy that says like yes but but we should also recognize when enough's enough and you know i mean he makes a point to talk about his salary you know he's like my salary's sufficient and it's clear that he gets paid a lot more than other people but he's not in this to to become some sort of billionaire he's like hey 
we can do well, we can make money and, and, and so can the, the people who don't have as much, you know? And, and I think in, in Matei's case, like you really see like the beauty in that, you know, how something like that could work and it, it could benefit people. I mean, this is a movie about the world and the world that has largely now been, been shaped by this post-war order and, 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 you know, specifically like these seven sisters and, and where they have driven us. And again, you know, not to get too topical, but, but so many of the political intricacies of what's happening right now in Europe, you know, with people being like, well, we'd love to cut them off, but the pipelines, you yeah. know, like we're all tied together by this bullshit, you know, mm -hmm. we need this stuff. Yeah, I love the way that the film addresses how just like any change in the routine of the, the way things are going, like the dominant order, like can instill, you know, maybe moments of comedy, but like true horror amongst those listening. I mean, when Matei is talking about breaking up the seven sisters, the moment he just stops speaking, you have an American in the audience being like, has anybody thought about like killing this guy yet? Like <laughs> who's, you know, where, uh, where's the assassination plot on this dude? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, that's part of it, you know, is like at, when when we start to see this, this sort of section of the film where, you know, it's really it becomes like Matei battling the international press and battling mm -hmm. the the interests of the Seven Sisters and, you know, the Americans, you know, the Western powers like, you know, he, he starts to get attacked in the press as being like, you know, you're trying to politicize energy. You're trying to politicize oil and gas and all this stuff. And he like strikes back, you know, and he's like, look, everyone involved in the fucking oil industry is involved in politics. It's always been that way, you know, fr from from the, the agreement that was struck immediately following World War One, where several European nations just carved up the Middle East with arbitrary borders so that they could basically, you know, build this empire, build this empire of oil and, and control of energy for most of the world, right? I mean, Matei says, like, the politics are already here. They might not explicitly be saying it. That's the difference, you know? I am explicitly saying the thing that they, they don't want to print in the press. I just want to point out that Matei is living a very Richard J. Daly lifestyle. It's, it's classic, right? Because he seeks <laughs> power, but he has a very modest home life. And right, money is not his concern. And, you know, famously, Richard Daly lived in a, a bungalow uh, you know, uh, in Bridgeport, a little, just tiny little bungalow with his wife and, uh, ha didn't have it own anything lavish, just being in that office, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and I feel like Matei is the same way, you know, he gets high off, uh, his, his international jet setting, you know, and obviously part of it is Volante. Uh, <laughs> but you're right. Cause you know, they, they share uh, on a certain level, like this, this sense of, you know, a, a public persona that they're very conscious of and, and the persona that they're putting out in the world. And, and specifically in the case of Matei here, right? You know, we, we do have a scene where we kind of get his backstory and, and he was not some rich kid. He doesn't come from money, you know, and, and he tells of his, 
his background, you know, a childhood of poverty and, and becoming a quote, self-made man, as he says. And so I think like in his case, you know, he really does see the opportunity for upward mobility and that this can be a way for everyone to become a part of the middle class, right? It's like the ultimate dream. Like we're all supposed to be in the middle class. Shouldn't everybody be in the middle class? Shouldn't the rich come down a bit and shouldn't the poor go up a bit? I mean, he really does have that, that dream, that mindset, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's also completely humiliated by a fat American oil man. Uh, And I think that also, you know, again, in the film's construction is a, a very, you know, big point where he sort of forms his, you know, worldview as he's building this company because he meets with this, you know, hog of a man, uh, who, you know, obviously represents like Texas oil or whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. and he's basically humiliated by this guy when he says, uh, I don't deal with oil salesmen. I deal with oil men. Yeah. Uh, Matei just cannot fucking handle that, you know, because to those guys, he's just this podunk government administrator. Yeah. And he, he makes a point, you know, of, of even talking about how Italy was relegated to a sort of second tier power, you know, and again, that speaks to the point you brought up of him kind of being a nationalist as well. Like a lot of the driving force is bringing Italy back to the world stage, back to a place of of respect and and if not equal footing certainly a much better footing than they've been left on following the second world war you know this this return to greatness and in some of his language you know in some of the comparisons he makes he he invokes at times you know even like the roman empire and julius caesar yeah. so you know i think he sees himself as this sort of like put upon uh historical figure in the same way you know right and that's why I was so surprised how convincing I found all of those scenes that detail the personal life behind the scenes. You know, it's one of those things that's so dangerous in a biopic when you've got someone that feels larger than life and you see their at-home world and it just kind of feels a little cloying or sentimental. But when you got scenes of Matei, you know, really groggy, waking up, you know, for a, at 6 a.m. when he gets the phone call at his hotel, his, like, bed is littered with papers. He's still, like, in his suit. You, you feel a man who like has all of these ideals and you actually feel the weight of like god i have to face like the oil industry today like i gotta show my face to all of those clowns i gotta go talk to mr texas who's giving me grief and i think a lot of that has to do like i was mentioning with shooting in real spaces it does give everything this authentic flavor to it and just the hybrid format bringing in documentary bringing in real people, having all of the extras just being people who are actually there in those places. And on top of that, it also formally has the ability to make it feel like he could just be, like, assassinated at any moment, you know? And particularly there's this kind of recurring, like, pulsating synthesizer thing going on in the movie uh, that really kind of leans into the paranoia of it all. Every time that music cue kicked in the first thing i thought was like there is a man 500 feet away from matei like with binoculars like studying every goddamn thing he's doing yes he pissed off everybody along the way it seemed yeah you know (laughs) even the people who who liked him and i I don't even know if i should use the word liked him but but chose to work with him and strike deals with him 
you know, so many people just seem like frustrated by him or are perhaps maybe like nervous they're going to get blown up alongside him at any moment. You know, there's the great scene when I think he's with a, a like a French, you know, uh, you know, politician or somebody, you know, works in the French energy industry and they're coming back from Moscow. And I, I wanted to ask you guys in that scene because it wasn't made totally clear when they were in Moscow, when he's in Moscow with this this other sort of like French I don't know, politician or or energy guy, they're in this like really long line, like a procession of people where, and I was wondering like, cause Rossi doesn't tell us what they were in line for, but it clearly was some event. Was that Stalin's funeral? Like what? No, no, they were going to see Lenin's embalmed body. Right. Okay. Lenin's tomb. That was the other thing I thought. I've been in that exact same line, but in Vietnam. So it was like very like evocative to me. And it's like a steadily moving line, which they show because they kind of work people through it. But I did the same thing for Ho Chi Minh. I like it was like a very similar looking building, right? Like communist architecture and mm-hmm. just a huge line of people like slowly making their way to go see the, the body of the old leader. Pay the respects. I, I guess I missed that in all the notes. I mean, I'm telling you, I was just constantly like looking up and down. I actually just stopped this movie a couple of times and like rewind it because there was so much information. A yeah. Ton. I rewound it a bunch. It's, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. when they're when they're then coming back from Moscow in his personal jet, th- their, their plane suddenly gets intercepted by two fighter planes. And the French guy is like shitting bricks. Like, we're going to get blown up, you know, because they're ordering us down. We have to land immediately in Yugoslavia. It's the Yugoslavian Air Force, right? Did you file a flight plan? He's like, no, nah, I'm too busy. We got to go. Like, we got to get back. I got a meeting at 11 or whatever after seeing right. Lenin's tomb. Like, we got to fucking move. I'm not filing any flight plans. And the French guy's like, they're going to fucking shoot us down. And he's like, I refuse to land. And he's like, give me the radio. And suddenly Mateo like gets on the radio and like, I guess, yes, he's probably implied in this that like, he's probably buddies with Tito as well. And he gets like right. the okay. And yeah, it's he's like, like, I know the minister, just tell him it's me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then this cool thing happens then where like the two Yugoslavian fighters, like everyone's like, Oh, it's, it's Matei. And the fighters do like a barrel roll in like salute of his plane <laughs> and like take off. And this French guy is just like, Holy shit. Like what the hell, man? And he's like, you really should get out of Algeria, by the way, you know, the world yeah. would be a much better place if you like Italy gave up all your colonies, you know? I mean, that's part of their conversation, right? That they yep. even have in Moscow. It's, he's like, you know, it's easier for us to go make deals in the quote so-called third world because we were stripped of all of our of our empire, and now we're just a developing nation once again, like so many of the, these other people. And I think the specific line is, he's like, you, France, America, Great Britain, you would do so much better if you saw the third world as a world of men, you know. And that's like his whole point. Italy, mm-hmm. again, speaking to his like pride or whatever, like. Italy was so crushed and so, you know, leveled and and had all of its pride stripped away by the events of the Second World War that, like, it's all just a rebuilding project from that point of of being seen as as not even a second-rate, but like a third-rate power at a certain point. But for him... And, 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 you know, for probably many other Italians, you know, this is certainly his, his point. We need to learn from an event like that. You know, we need to learn from an event like that and now move forward in this world to the best of our ability, like respectfully, more openly and, and not like fucking 
empirical bullies or whatever, you know, or excuse me, imperial bullies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of showcased in like uh, in the micro sense in that really funny moment when he is getting the, the gas of his car filled and someone mentions like, are you so democratic that you pay for your own petroleum, you know? But it's it's the men who are cleaning his car and he makes a point. He's like, we tell them to smile because uh, poverty takes that away from them. They forget how to smile. So we make a very p- good point about making sure they smile. And that's like a fun, that's like a telling moment I thought of. Of like a bit of a groaner coming from you know like a guy who claims he's he's like for the people you know to say something as silly as that like oh poverty makes it so people forget how to smile it's like yeesh man well, but I, I think that there's also like some some irony in in a lot of that you know because at that moment sure. He is traveling around with that journalist, you know, and he's specifically mm-hmm. like, all right, you're here to do a profile of me. All right, well, let's do it. Let's do it right, you know, and he's taking this guy for a ride. And and again, this is like the the, the masterful ability of a guy like Volante to really like to walk that line, you know, that, that he isn't simply this, yeah, saintly character, that he's also like... A, a businessman and an Italian guy that's made a lot of deals and 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 has a good sense of humor about all this stuff as well, you know. So for me, I guess I kind of see too the the irony and a lot of sure. of that the posturing that that he he goes through, you know. And to your point again, Marsh, the sort of paradoxical nature of a guy that you know is clearly and seeks to be a man of the people, but also really like understands the crafting of that image the crafting of the image of being a man of the people because in a, in a different interview right there's like another interview with with some guy from i think time magazine when they're doing a profile on him and they're talking about all this stuff and of course he's stating his political and business philosophies but while they're doing this profile he's at a lake fishing you know and it's very clearly for him the setup you know like we're gonna do my profile at this lake where i'm fishing and he says a line that he repeats several times i think in the film senta non si dimentichi di scrivere che per enrico mattei petrolio è un hobby il vero lavoro è questo qui oil that's just a hobby of mine my my job is really I'm a fisherman, right? Isn't that what he yeah. says? Like my job is fishing, and he even says to the journalist, "Did you get that line? Do you got the line? Make sure you print this line." Man, I wish there were more fishing scenes. I wish there were more scenes. I mean, like I get that the main reason we saw that was for him crafting his public persona, but I would love to just like watch. Matei fishing while all of these thoughts he's having or explicit like speeches he's giving are just playing over it but we're just looking at the water you know yeah and it is funny that one of the biggest departure points between these two films um and it was i was thinking about it during that gas station scene when he was crafting his image and it's like oh it's off like man he should have gone to the gas pump girls to to get his gas and then i was thinking about like <laughs> god damn like this is like a truly like a sexless film you know like this man he gets that thrill from work his fucking is working the art of the deal you know Mm -hmm. exactly yeah that is where he's like scratching that itch how could you not you know as he says oil brings down governments causes revolutions and coup d'etats and when that's your daily life getting some kicks out of that oh yeah you know oh yeah yeah it's better than sex 
<laughs> yeah, and and then the film gets you know even more complex when Rossi uh, interjects himself into the film after the real life disappearance of his journalist friend, and that adds yes just another you know layer of this cane esque onion that's sort of being peeled away. And uh, I guess uh, uh, an aspect of the film we haven't really highlighted too much is the incessant journalism going on in the film, just phone calls, newspapers, people interviewing people. Like we're mm-hmm. seeing the press. So much of this film is made out of media materials and also depicting scenes of media being made. Yes. Like in real time. Again, makes your head spin. It is really like a, a film about, I would say maybe even more so than Citizen Kane, like how our identity and how our legacy on that scale, you know, in, or I should say like the scale of a guy like this, like, you know, it isn't what's happening behind closed doors. It's everything that's happening out there in the open in front of everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really slippery in the way it's presenting this like web of history, because I was thinking about if this film had come out now, you know, the scenes that are contemporary journalism or investigation would have just been color graded radically differently. Like the past would have been orange and the current stuff would just be blue. But, But this film doesn't do that. So when you shift into a new mode, like if you're following these journalists or learning more about the one who disappeared or even just seeing Francesca Rossi, it's all the same film stock it's all got that same glow to it um and there's like less things that are immediately signifying you i mean there are times where rosi is in the frame like there's that great scene at the airport where he's grilling a man who was supposedly there when matei died and he's like asking him questions and you can't quite tell if it's staged or not because again it's like shot on 35 cameras like in the corner on a tripod and then in the background the drama that Rossi is orchestrating is happening. Like we're seeing the actors he's hired follow through on the act of setting up the assassination of Matei way off in the distance. So then it becomes even more perplexing because you're like, okay, is this a real interview that he's conducting? Are we in the present? Are we in the past? The director is on screen in his fiction, but he gets it. You know, that's the only way you can actually understand history like this. It's like yeah. postmodern history, yeah, you know? 100%. And, you know, we've kind of talked about this particular like era of European cinema, I think previously on the podcast. So, you know, for the sake of our listeners, like we don't have to like hash all that <laughs> out, you know, the lose and the time image, you know, post-war cinema, neorealism, like spiraling out into all these more wild and, and interesting forms. But that's exactly like what, what Rossi is doing here again, you know, his like sort of approach to like, you know, neo neorealism, cinema verite was this sort of like, well, sure, it's all a construct, but, you know, within that, we find a problem of truth. We don't find some sort of, like, philosophical truth, capital T, big, pure idea of truth. Like, right. this is the truth. Like, no, 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 no. We have truths, and that's what we see being played with. And that's exactly what you were saying before, too, when you think about it in terms of you'd think you'd see a scene where an argument's being made and you're like, okay, this is the thesis. Like, I have something to hold on to. 
And just immediately the following scene, it would seem that Rosie is making like another argument. And that's sort of how the film works. It's the scenes are quite short. There's not a lot of extended scenes, but in all of these scenes, there's like a new rhetorical game being introduced or at least a new argument. So it is a series of truths that are then up to us to like, as we're looking at this collage to try and like find something to hold on to at the end of the day or acknowledge that it's pretty much impossible to, if we're trying to actually understand what's going on with Matei. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or as like Marge brought up, even like very troubling for Rossi in the midst of making this film, his buddy DeMauro, who now is suddenly also right. disappeared and is now having in the midst of making this film about like what he believes was like a political murder, another political murder that's perhaps resulting from this and resulting from his investigation. I mean, he's the one I believe, right. That like sent DeMauro back to start interviewing some of these people and to reconstruct things. And then suddenly his fucking buddy disappears. And now he's got this whole like, shit, did I get this fucking guy killed? Well, let's get some answers here, right? And 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 I will say for like Rosie, like I, I think in those scenes where we see him, you get this very in his, you know, again, quote, performance or whatever, you know, his interviews. I mean, he has this very kind of like almost defeatist kind of approach. Like he just seems to be a guy that's like knowing he's not going to get answers to any of the questions he's asking you know there's that that scene then when he's like trying to i guess talk to police or other investigators about tomorrow's disappearance you know and they they bring up well it hasn't been proven that he's been killed (laughs) they're trying to tell him like well we're just dealing with a kidnapping here and in fact you know we talked to some of the sicilian guys you know we've we've done some investigating and and the sicilians say that he's you know 98 percent alive isn't that the phrase right. he used? Yeah, that like, is, yeah. He's 98% alive. And he's like, what the fuck is 98% alive mean? The guy's like, well, it's Sicilian terminology or whatever, yeah. right? <laughs> A lot of questions. Yeah. And yeah, of course, you know, through this, uh, you know, this this crystal ball of memories we're looking into, doesn't even make any sense, but uh, through That's this, true. you know. Uh, Jigsaw puzzle. You're trying to come up with him not say kaleidoscope, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like crystal ball. It's like, but it doesn't make any sense. But it's like Rosie's crystal ball. It's a fractured crystal ball. Yeah. If you think about it. <laughs> you got to think about the film. You have to think about the film as a crystal ball that Rosie is like rubbing his hands over. Yeah. And then he's like transmuting like that vision to us. Yeah. He just ate a very greasy piece of pizza and then he was holding the crystal ball and now he's got all these... <laughs> smudges and and grease marks all over it you know (laughs) not helpful Sicilian Uh, pizza and uh in in the the kaleidoscope that Rossi is presenting to us we get a, a slice of Sicily because in his last days one of the things he was attempting to do is to bring uh you know the power of methane to Sicily and we get an epic scene of him parading around town and giving a speech which again has this very ambiguous tone you know, in uh, what he's promising versus, you know, what Rousey's showing us, and that whole vibe is off. But it also introduces, yes, the mafia more explicitly into the proceedings, um, and that, again, just adds another pawn 
onto the table then of, well, yeah, sure, you know, maybe he was uh, blown up by the French or the Americans or the oil companies or now the Sicilian mafia because he's moving in on Sicily. Yeah, and I think that what Rossi does there as well is introduce, you know, the this sudden, you know, a quote, appearance, because you never see, right? But any mafia guy certainly being interviewed and Rossi like addresses that, you know, it's like how ephemeral the mafia is in in Italy that maybe perhaps the the government are are content to lean on this idea that it was the mafia because that will go nowhere, because that investigation will lead absolutely nowhere and that now the mafia have become a very convenient conspiratorial fall guy for, you know, obfuscating the fact that, no, this was probably a collection of governments who, like, all conspired, you know, with American intelligence and a French Secret Service agent of Corsican origins to to murder this fucking guy, to blow up his plane with plastic explosives, you know? That fateful plane crash. Yeah. And it's in that crash where we hear of, you know, his dreams of of what could have been, you know, had had Matei not died. He thinks about, you know, is there oil on the moon? Dude, <laughs> yeah, I love whatever that. whatever you say about Matei, he he you know he he dreamt big. You, you can't say he didn't dream big. Yeah, his last couple of days were wild because Rossi's like interviewing people further, and then they're recreating more of his last days. And there's one. <laughs> There's one flashback to uh, the big dinner where he's like spouting off and he's like really, you know, just like commanding this table. And as the interviewee says, he was saying politically sensitive things. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 the, and everyone's just like <laughs> clapping. Everyone's just going, going nuts. nuts. They yeah. love it. Yeah. He's like, during the Sinai War, my guys defended the wells and not with the UN patch, with the ENI patch. <laughs> yeah. And then he further says, No, uh, no, 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 no. Yo detto piuttosto che stiano attenti a loro perché si stanno sedendo. A ragione mao. Yeah. You definitely know. Uh, cinematically that when when someone like this says something like that oh yeah there's gonna be a cia agent showing up on your doorstep pretty soon (laughs) at this particular time in history yeah reported yeah yeah there's gonna be an italian secret service agent tinkering with your plane on the runway Well, so it goes for a man who had half the world against him. I mean, that's that's really the impression I got when I walked away from it. You know, it's just like, Jesus Christ, a guy like this couldn't live. You know, he couldn't live. Somebody had to blow this motherfucker up, you know. Continuerò in tutto il mondo a battermi contro questo monopolio assurdo. E se non ci riuscirò io, ci riusciranno quei popoli che il petrolio ce l'hanno sotto i piedi. You know, thinking back on what you were saying earlier of, you know, Matei using fascism and uh, as a means of like hopping in a cab, you know, reading the meter and then like sort of like hopping out, you know, to, to get what he needed from it. This film, you know, we sort of glossed over it, but it, it is about a man who is inheriting a system from a source of evil. He's he's inheriting the oil industry in Italy from fascism and he's got these structures in place that he then has to redefine for himself. Uh, 
extremely similar to the um, <laughs> the instigating action in Gas Pump Girls, where June is inheriting this gas station from her predatory and frightening and uh, yeah just all around scary guy uncle uncle joe who is uh treated as like a little bit of light humor in the film but that was something that you know made me pretty queasy early on you know it's like after the high school graduation and the girls are driving around town they're like oh let's stop at uncle joe's to get some gas you know we'll, we'll support him and immediately we've got joe being like, Joni, Joni. Oh, joe my favorite niece. Let me have a look at you. It's just like, man, oh, man, oh, man. You know? <laughs> uh, I hear you. I, I would say, too, building upon that, I guess they're similar in the sense that, you know, uh, the Uncle Joe gas station that June sort of inherits is much like the post-war Italy that Mattei felt he inherited, you know, this Absolutely. this uh, this crumbling, decaying, rotten place lacking in development and infrastructure. And June, like Mattei, believes within her heart of hearts that it can be great again, that it can be rebuilt to its former glory. Then a little showmanship doesn't hurt either. Certainly not. Yeah. I think Matei and June would agree <laughs> yeah. on that. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I mean, Gas Pump Girls, in many respects, it's it's exactly what you'd expect, right? <laughs> you know, here we are. It's it's summertime. The film opens up. We've got the radio announcer signaling, you know, the end of the school year. Summer's here. You know, it's bright. It's colorful. Yeah, this film is, like, unbelievably bright. It's, like, borderline overexposed at yes. times. Oh, it's just, yeah. like, an in-your-face, brightly lit comedy. But it sets the stage of the two gas stations across the street from each other. And already you know where this is going. You know, okay, gas pump girls, like, they're going to have to save the day here because Uncle Joe's place has really fallen apart. But it is pretty shocking when we do meet the, the gas pump girls the titular gas pump girls at no the, pun intended their, yeah <laughs> uh-huh yeah at the at their graduation which is like really you know it's not super palatable uh with you know our 2022 glasses on you know and it's one of those things where i always think about like man like just the things that people found funny like our parents found funny back in the day like it was really a it was a different time because what we what we're what we're presented with is we have the classic you know, sleepy principal who's giving a really bizarre speech at Hometown High and talking about their futures. And all the while, the vultures, who are these three biker boys, uh, they're they're just sort of schlubbing it in the audience. They've got, like, loose ties on to make themselves look presentable, but they're still wearing their jeans and their big leather jacket. And that's when Pee-wee, he, he, he decides to really, you know— spice things up and he puts like little I think it's like little pins in all of their their graduation gowns so that yeah when they stand up there they're revealed in all their glory to to everyone in the crowd uh, causing one of the teachers to to pass out yeah and something that struck me about that is when the girls stand up and they are literally disrobed their graduation gowns are are torn asunder and they're revealed to be wearing nothing but like panties and, and no bras, like all of them. I was thinking to myself, 
like, did they, when they dressed for the graduation ceremony, they were like, okay, you wear the gown and that's it. <laughs> you just, yes. you wear the gown and that's it. They seemed like such nice it girls. Feels good, do it. Well, suppose, you, know, you know, look, this is actually a character moment, Ryan, because their reactions to are very this key. incident are very different and very key to their characters that will not develop any further. <laughs> But in the next scene, we get them in the locker room all half naked where they sort of reveal their different philosophies, right? Yeah. Because in the incident, one of them, April, the horny one, uh, she likes it. And and she is, uh, unbeknownst to herself, uh, an exhibitionist. She takes to it very well. And I Mm -hmm. do want to point out, of course, that April is played by Sandy Johnson, who is Judith Myers in the opening sequence of Halloween. You stole my big reveal. I was so excited to talk about that. Get wrecked. Because Bali and I are sitting there watching this thing, and it's during this locker room scene rumble. Like, you know, you hear Sandy's voice, you hear April's voice, and I'm like, God, like, I've... I've heard that voice before. Like, there is something unbelievably familiar about this woman. And the longer she's standing on screen and she's topless, that's the more I, I like, literally said to Molly, like, I know those breasts. Like, I've seen this. Who is she? Like, I know who this is. And we looked it up and it was like, oh, my God, she's Judith Myers, which those were, like, very formative breasts for me those were like some of the first like exposed boobs i had ever seen in a movie because i saw halloween at an extremely young age you knew those jugs (laughs) i did i did there's also in the crew betty the mature one uh who espouses a kind of uh yeah more traditional or capitalist way of being a woman where you take advantage of men uh, and get things out of them with your sexuality and you be smart about it and she lectures everyone about this uh and then yeah there's june the main character who's the straight-laced one i love her her reaction to all this is she's like talking to april she's like Okay, but if you liked it, just keep it to yourself, you know? That's what normal people do. I'm like, oh, this is the, like, normal repressed one that we're supposed to identify with, who also has an uncle who owns a gas station, right? Yeah. You know, today while I was working, I tossed on the... I was I rented the Blu-ray from Scarecrow Video and I I tossed on the the audio commentary track thinking that I would maybe walk away with some some insights from from Joel Bender about his process or working with Nicholas von Sternberg. Uh, didn't get a lot of that. The guy certainly didn't have a lot of you know remarkably interesting things to say. One of those like kind of creepy old Hollywood dudes. Or while we're watching, you know, and we get that scene in the locker room, he's just like Betty, just could not get her to take her top off just (laughs) something that just didn't work out wow and it's like yeah she's one of the few in that scene that is wearing is wearing a bra in the locker room she's not as as uh uninhibited as 
is Sandy Johnson in the, the film. The difficulties of being a Canon Films director circa 1979, I swear yeah. to God. Yeah, whenever, the only things I could see for the genesis of this movie, too, were him talking about how he and a buddy wanted to make a horror movie because horror pictures were such a hit at the time. Then when he was proposed to do this film, a comedy, you know, about gas pump girls, he, he said, well, as long as I get uh, a song... I want to do a song in the film. And we do eventually get that. We get like a single, I mean, there's some moments in between the locker room and this moment, but yeah, there is a, out of nowhere, it's a really bizarre <laughs> thing. I was just like totally shocked. Is, is June is like at the gas station in the middle of the night and she just starts singing. I'm lonely and I don't want to be, don't know why these feelings have come over me. I'm lonely and I finally see how I need the people who are close to me. Just give me all of my friends and I'll be happy again. Oh, bring them back home where you know they belong. Just give me all of my friends. I'm in heaven again. Feeling like the whole world is singing along. And it's a musical, I mean, quote unquote, musical number is a bit of a stretch. It is a song, but primarily she just is sitting there singing about her friends and how she's lonely and wants to be around all her friends. And then she sort of just like, stands up and just like walks around the gas station like touching things, <laughs> but without interacting with them. Like that's the choreography. There's no dancing or fanfare. She's just like touching the gas station <laughs> and singing about her friends. And I mean, there's like some music, it's like full on songs throughout the rest of the film, but none of the characters are ever singing like that. It is like really quite odd. I will say that number is is sweet. It's kind of a nice song. It's if you think about the heart of the song, right? This is the chorus is something like, just give me all my friends yeah. and I'll be happy again. You know, it's just a song about wanting to have all your friends around, you know? She's not singing for success and you know, for all of her dreams to come true, to be a big star somewhere in life. She just wants to have her friends around and to have a good time. Well, there's a very pointed moment early on in the film after their graduation and dance where June is being dropped off by her boyfriend, Roger, and he just starts, like, like it seems like they're about to have sex, and then he starts going like, this may be the last time we ever see each other. Yeah. And he just like trails off and it gets like completely unerotic. And then she just gets out and he drives away. And I was cracking up so hard. It's like, of su- you know, this movie obviously not well directed in any sense, but that scene <laughs> really worked for me, you know? Sure. Like, it was great. I loved it. Mm-hmm. And for what it's worth, I mean, yes, it's not well directed, but I think part of the success of that scene and some of the other scenes is it, it, it isn't shot horribly. Like when no. there are camera movements, they're graceful. There's a nice crane shot in the musical number. Kicking yeah. it old school Hollywood style. <laughs> they come in, they come in high, you know, high angle crane classic dropped swoop down as she starts the musical number very Minnelli-esque yeah Yeah. you gotta give it up it's that Sternberg touch (laughs) (laughs) so then her 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 song uh sort of you know um kind of develops then you know the ideas in her song the sentiment uh in her song develop then into I think 
uh, a very selfish scheme that she hatches to keep all of her friends around her. <laughs> Force them to work at the gas station? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, I, it's just, you know, I was like thinking like, yeah, they just graduated. They're, they're full of hope. You know, they're, as her boyfriend was sort of alluding, now they're all going to go off to college. You know, their lives are going to mature. You know, they're going to develop, you know. And this girl's just sitting there going like, I don't want these people to leave. I want everyone to stay. I want things to stay the way they always have been, yeah. you know. And so it's she true. sabotages whatever plans her friends may have had to go on and get a college degree, you know, to become perhaps a lawyer, a doctor, a successful CEO to work at Uncle Joe's, creepy Uncle Joe's gas station. (laughs) Uncle Joe seems like pretty happy to be like rid of the responsibility too. That's the other thing I want to say that also, you know, the whole thing is we're supposed to like sympathize with with Uncle Joe and to be like the poor hardworking gas station guy. When we're introduced, this guy's sitting on his ass doing nothing to improve his lot. And in fact, when he, I think when he gets the non-payment order, you know, he doesn't sit there and pull out his hair and stress about what can I do to turn things around. He takes the bill and he turns it into a paper airplane and throws it out the door. You know, I'm sitting there going like, this is just a bad businessman. This is just a guy that doesn't know how to run a goddamn gas station. I don't feel bad for this guy at all. (laughs) Yeah, he's pretty checked out. He does not have Enrico Mattei's energy for enterprise. There's even a weird moment after his heart attack when the family is all all standing around there where he, he like, gets up as if he's, like, faking to even begin with, you know? So I think there's something to that. I would would buy that, like, he never had a heart attack. No, the guy's just a malingerer. <laughs> yeah, it's a totally valid. You know, read. he, the actor, uh, Hunts Hall, who plays him, was an original dead end kid in Bowery Boy. Because I was going to say, <laughs> like, on a certain level, too, this does have the, like, reek of a, like, a little rascal's picture, you know? It's yeah. like the yeah. scheme, like, we're going to run the gas station for the summer. It'll be fun, you know? Yep. And there he is. And that's actually one of the things that. I most appreciated about this movie is this kind of like meta textual side character thing going on because outside of the gas pump girls and boys who end up running this station, there's all these crusty old men who intervene in the story and they're all very hilarious old Hollywood crusty guys. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, and that, those guys like really gave me pleasure and just like looking up being like, where do I know this guy from? You know, the classic, classic shit. And the one at a certain point, right? The, the, the evil gas station across the street sends some gangsters over. Oh God. And yeah. one of them, Moiv. <laughs> yeah, Moiv, <laughs> the guy who plays Moiv was first of all, discovered by Joseph von Sternberg Whoa. was a real life wrestler and plays one in a Jules Dassin noir and is in like several noir films from the forties. And here he is just in like an ill-fitting plaid suit, <laughs> you know, yucking it up with a, like a comedian sidekick. Yeah. Again, another guy that like I had a very uncanny feeling with i was like i've seen this guy in things before (laughs) you know i didn't look him up i should have because that would have explained that you know (laughs) he's a knight in the city right 
Yeah, the wrestler guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. They both look like they could honestly. They're you know they're putting on an air of toughness, but they they look like if they fell over, uh, they'd be in trouble. They'd be yeah. in bed. Oh for my god. Like a few weeks. Yeah. The 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 scheme is to send a couple of like seventy eight year old. <laughs> Like mafia guys, <laughs> whatever, like gun thugs to the gas station. We're gonna go ahead of ourselves here, but yeah, because yeah, we should still, yeah, we should talk about Joe's super duper and the way they've rebranded the gas station in order to get people to to buy their gasoline. They have two tiers. Ryan, of that's gas. obvious. <laughs> well, yes, well, very specifically, just so everyone knows, so they don't have to kind of like sit through this movie. I could, we could get this over with for them. They. They, they set up two types of gas. They've got regular gas and they've got super duper gas. And, um, you know, one of the women is well endowed. And I guess you can guess which of the two types of gas she serves to to the clientele, uh, to say the least. And they all wear hot pink cut off uh, yeah. braless uh, outfits. Yeah. Like T-shirts Short that shorts. have been cut just below the, you know... And it's in it's in this scene where we get like uh, all the wordplay is starting to be introduced, and it's when Sandy says like I don't know anything about pumping gas. Like, can you tell me about it? And that's when we just get innuendo after innuendo. Oh, it's not hard. First, you grab a hold of the nozzle like this. That turns it on. Right. Then you stretch it out. Can get pretty long. And you stick it in the car and squeeze. And the gas comes spurting out. Right. And that was like a funny moment in the commentary when like the dorky interviewer is asking Joel Bender or just like mentioning the fact like, oh, these are all like pretty clever. And Joel Bender just says, it's like poetry. They're all little poems. And it's like, dude. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Though to be fair, I did find some of them clever. And in particular, there is um, a scene where like a man shows up with his truck and he's like, let's take a look under the hood. And the conversation they have while looking at his engine. I've been having awful trouble with my transmission. Seems like every time she overheats, she rubs up against my piston rod. Causes my lube valves to overflow all over my crankshaft. Just shoots the carburetor all to hell and makes my ball joints a mess. I was legitimately impressed with that wordplay. The, the the previous one is just like kind of horny and goofy, but that one I was like, this is inventive. Like there is actual thought being put into um into these gags. Look, I'm a simple man. I like the uh, the introduction to pumping gas. The four steps: grab it, stick it in, squeeze it, and let it peter out. <laughs> what more do you need? <laughs> yeah. There's lots of good, yeah, there's, I mean, there's just so much, like, pumping gas goofs throughout the film. There's a really nice moment where one of the guys um, is is witnessing, I'm actually forgetting what he's directly looking at. He's seeing something very erotic, and the camera pans down to reveal that he, you know, prematurely shot his wad, and the, the gas is, like, spilling all over his groin because he gripped it too yeah, tight. Yeah, he's just looking at one of the girl's ass, and we get, like, three POV shots of her ass, and yeah, then it cuts back. Go. And he's, yeah, he's wet himself. With, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else would cause a man like that in a picture like this to do something 
love that. Well, well, yeah, of course. But then, yeah, I mean, all the guys start getting involved, both, um, you know, some of the, the boyfriends and then also the vultures themselves get get brought into the mix. And it becomes this little gas station utopia. I particularly love the vultures sort of joining the crew because they come in wanting to, like, muck everything up. They're just, like, knocking over, like, the, the Pennzoil cans and just, like, making a mess of their, like, you know, picture-perfect little gas station. Yeah, and pretty, then eventually, pretty, like... Half-assed sort of attempt to like <laughs> yeah. wreck up the place. It won't be the only half-assed attempt to wreck up the place we're gonna see in this movie. You know, June is like Matei because she takes their energy and, and redirects it towards capitalism. You know, and they make yeah. over this old truck and they become the tow truck drivers they for the station. Specifically, say, let's vultureize the tow <laughs> yeah. truck. And they sure do vulturize it. They take that beat up old tow truck and they've got now like, you know, it's got a nice glistening black paint job. And it's got the flames on the sides. You know, it looks it's like a cartoon vulture. That's so true, though. That's like a great way of framing it. Like Matei knowing how to redirect their energy because that is they use that energy very effectively when they're actually towing a car in the film because they they're sent to look for a green Buick and they're driving around town singing their goofy songs. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh. And they arrive, they find the green Buick, and the way they do it, the way they're going through the motions, it's like they're jacking a car. Yes. It's like they're committing a theft. That's a really good gag. Yeah. He's got like a coat hanger he uses to like... <laughs> Pop the lock, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I do think it's really funny, too, like, you know, when they were introduced, like, when they're sort of, like, offered the job by, by June. Like, June's kind of like, hey, you know, as you mentioned, like, she's redirecting the energies, and she's like, you know, you can you can come work for us. We can put your talents, your your particular talents to use. And, and you know, one of them is, like, really, like, okay, you know, he's like, let's go. And the other guy, like, says to him, like, no, nah, this is bullshit or whatever. And he says, Hey, she's just pulling your ding dong. <laughs> they don't want to give us a job or whatever, you know. And then it's is a butch like the the sort of like basically basically like the leader of the gang, the leader of the pack. Uh, yeah, he has this weird fucking moment. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, where it just like he turns and he looks at her and he gets like so ultra serious and he turns back to his friend and he goes, "No, this chick is sincere." Like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> like, do you, do you remember that? Yeah. Like, I do, yeah. It's like he had this weird, like, clairvoyant moment where he saw, like, everything that was to come or something like that. I mean, like, he's, like, possessed for a moment when he says that. It was just, like, very, very odd. Yeah. yeah, the vultures are secretly like the three wise men, you know, they, they may be doing all this posturing with their like extremely heavily accented fake New Jersey accents all the way out here in Sacramento, California. Yeah, you know, they're playing up a cartoonish bit, but I do think that they see through some of this stuff with 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 a certain clarity. Yeah. You know, the problem with this movie on a certain level is that there's too met, there's too much comic relief. There's too many people. It's all comic relief. It's all comic relief. Every, it's like, I guess June is the straight person or whatever, you know, the only one playing it straight, but it's like, 
you know, there's all it's like these are the cut-ups right here. And it's like, no, they're the cut-ups. Wait, we got a couple more cut-ups. I mean, it's just like nonstop <laughs> yeah. uh cutting it up. You know, I couldn't keep up. I guess it. if you if you think about the reality of these kind of movies though, aren't they essentially designed to be comic relief distractions in between sessions of people like fucking in their cars at the drive-in? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like people are gonna be like fucking at different rates throughout the film. Yes. So they want to make sure that like the audience members walk away with at least some memorable bits of comedy for word of mouth. Yeah. So they have to pepper it in from beginning to end because it's unpredictable, the the mating rituals at the drive-in. Yeah. That is true. These movies weren't necessarily designed to be watched in a particular way. Like we're doing. A podcast <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it was funny to me how much of this film is like, you know, car wash exploitation as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of disco montages. Uh, and I love, yeah, just the egregious spectacle of it all in some of these sequences. Because in those wide shots, which I think they reuse the same shot in different times. like times they've they've like caused a fucking you know traffic jam in the gas station because they're having like half naked disco dance parties to attract customers yeah. and i'm like it's not very efficient i don't know how they're making any money because they're just like dancing yeah there's right. like cars <laughs> yeah. just stuck like looking and watching <laughs> yeah waiting to get their gas pumps, you know? Like, <laughs> It's one of my favorite scenes of the whole film is when Betty and Butch have their big disco yes. dance and they're trying so hard and the scene is they're surrounded by all of these completely disinterested extras that are so tired of standing out in that hot fucking sun and clapping along for all the different takes. Yeah. They, If you just like focus entirely on the people in the background like they want to go home so bad sacramento's finest and again like rossi you know this film is using yes the people of sacramento because ryan (laughs) uh, in that exact moment i was doing what you were doing because there's vivid shots of these extras in the background and you can read all of them and look at all their faces and it is like a diverse range of people and ages not looking at like the the dumb disco dancing but just (laughs) the neorealist Sacramento background yes yes in that regard it isn't a window into another world it's a mirror held up to our own you know we are those people you know standing there wondering like how is any of this possible like how is this business working like what about my car you know they don't even have a qualified mechanic here you know oh man it's very true what another great scene the, the scene when they actually start working on one of the cars, because they bring in the boyfriends essentially to be the mechanics. Yeah, you guys know about cars and stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, there's a very funny extended bit where one of the guys, he, he gets in the car, he's like, we got to work on the brakes and this, so that they lift the car up. I, I can't, I don't know what that's called, but when the car is like elevated in the garage so they could work underneath and it. And the lift. And the lift. And lo and behold... Sandy is inside the car and she's she's not wearing a whole lot. So she starts to, you know, give one of these boys um some some delights 
inside of the car as it's up on the lift and he has to keep calling out oh it's not just the brake we need an oil change uh and he just starts like running through the list of all of the different things that you yeah. need to fix the ball joints rotate the tires and it, with each one his inflection reveals more of like yeah you you need to fix the ball joints uh gentlemen <laughs> because yeah. again uh, not efficient business practice i gotta be honest no, not at all Mm-mm. so in a way it's not surprising that it's so easy for Mr. Friendly, the cigar-chomping man across the street at the Pyramid gasoline station to just, like, completely fuck up their entire business by creating an artificial oil crisis, by redirecting the flow of gasoline so it's not able to make its way to Joe's Super Duper. I have a question. Did you guys get a look at the picture on the wall in Mr. Friendly's office? Was that J. Edgar Hoover? That's what I thought. That's what I was wondering, but I... Didn't know. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Okay, I'm, it has to be then. Yeah, in Mister Friendly's office, there's a a hanging like a hanged picture of J. Edgar Hoover, which is a nice touch. Well, um, he he does uh, like to surveil the business across the street, so I guess that would track to a certain extent. I didn't notice it, so I'll be honest with you. Uh, my attentions were elsewhere. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the cans of oil on the wall? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I was, cans. yeah. The oil filters. <laughs> I was like, look at that stack of oil filters there. You know? I actually also really enjoyed looking at the stacks of oil in the film. I, I like movies that are sometimes set in grocery stores. There's something about shooting on film and seeing all of the, just everything. Like, it's like so much detail, everything on the shelves. And there's a lot of that in some of these gas station interiors, just things all stacked up. You know, at first I thought this was a movie, you know, my initial reading of it, when the film starts, I was thinking this is going to be a movie about, you know, a capitalist nightmare. And then like, as the film progressed, I, I came to realize that the people who wrote this film seemingly know nothing about any form of capital or business whatsoever because right. yes as like the scheme develops to like try to shut them down uh and we have mr friendly as you said like now cutting off their supply of of gas uh from you know the parent company or whatever uh and we then get introduced to this business executive who works for pyramid or something like that pyramid petroleum products Pier- yeah ppp <laughs> ppp <laughs> Uh, the, the, the executive of PPP, I was thinking like, why would he ever agree to something like that? You know, if he's supposed to be some sort of fat cat business guy, why would he let some like, you know, second rate Carol (laughs) O'Connor like look alike, uh, convince him to like not sell some of his product to someone, you know, I feel like he would just be like, no, you stupid old man. (laughs) Like I'm selling gas to everybody. As many people want (laughs) to buy my product as possibly I'm going to fucking sell it to them. I mean, yeah, it seems like they have a monopoly if they are both the, you know, the supply and the gas station. And yeah, I mean, it's like. (laughs) The guy would be like, I'm winning either way. I'm not going to. Yeah, dude, it literally (laughs) doesn't matter. Yeah. (laughs) I I guess I would say, given the evidence that the film provides for us without, you know, bearing the lead or jumping too far ahead. At the end of the film, when we do meet the man that is providing all of the gasoline to the area, we do find out he is rather impressionable. And when he hears the story of the trials that June and her fellow gas pump girls have been dealing with, he he weeps. And he says that's one of the saddest stories they've ever heard. So if, if their simple 
you know, summer ordeal brought that man to tears. Imagine what Mr. Friendly could have said to that man uh, in order to convince him to only give his gasoline to them. He seems like a man that's pretty easy to convince of uh, anything. I'll I'll accept that, Ryan. I guess I'll, I'll have to accept that reading of it, you know? But it's true. No, it's a completely, like, tone-deaf film in terms of its <laughs> understanding of business. <laughs> they are, like, so out of touch yeah, but with again, any sense of reality. You know, it's... it's I'm, I shouldn't be I shouldn't be even going there. It's really, you know, that's on me. It's not on uh, Mr. Bender at all, I think. I thought the film was going in in a a fun direction when they pull off an oil heist or a gas heist about three-fourths of the way through because that's their, you know, that's their solution to uh, their their problem, right, is just go siphon some gas from the gas station across the street. Yeah, they create up this this elaborate scheme whereby they're going to have a car, they're going to go across the street uh, in disguise or something like that. Multiple disguises and multiple cars. <laughs> yes. And they're going to they're gonna get Mr. Friendly's gas station to pump gas into their vehicle, but they really have hooked up a hose to their fuel line so that all the gas goes through the car and into this hose across the street to the fuel tanks. At Joe's Super Duper, at Uncle Joe's Super Duper. And, uh, yeah, again, uh, really amazed that that worked, uh, at least for the moment that it did work. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of an amazing cut because it goes from that scene, which appears to be a successful heist, to just the gas is immediately out and they're all just sitting around. (laughs) Yeah. And that's like the next scene. And then June berates everyone. uh, And that's when they decide to, uh, once again on the gauntlet, do a commando raid (laughs) into uh, the the gas works. (laughs) Yeah. If I've learned anything, you know, it's that a good commando raid... (laughs) Can, can solve so many problems. You yeah, know? yeah. There's so much time spent showcasing that heist and you're assuming that they might be set for a bit. And it just, the only way they could think to make that transition make any sense was they like superimpose a gas gauge on the screen where the gas is at full and then it just like goes down to empty. And again, it's it was pretty, you know, symptomatic of just like this film not having any more ideas on how to like just having ideas for scenes in general or how to bridge them in any cohesive way. But yes, they, they are driven to, to desperate, desperate measures for their commando raid. Yeah. A commando um, raid on the, the PPP headquarters themselves, right? <laughs> yeah. So they, you know, it's, it's, there's a, when a man is across the street at Pyramid gas station delivering gas to Pyramid, you know, June comes over and she talks to the delivery man and says like, Hey, how come you haven't been, you know, coming by Joe super duper lately? Like, why am I not on your route anymore? You're, you're hurting me here. And he's like, ah, I know it's like things from, you know, coming from higher ups. And she's like, well, how can I talk to, to someone at, uh, at the highest level like how do i get a face to face with them and he says nobody he like kind of mumbles it in a way that i had to rewind a few times because he like kind of get the line disappears from his mouth but he says no one gets to see the big boss unless he's an arab sheik and um th- that's what they do 
Yeah, another nice little uh, costume affair, just as they had pulled off uh, in their failed gas heist from the previous day. They also impersonate several police officers in this uh, mission. The vultures uh, adorn their motorbikes with, uh, you know, the Sacramento motorcycle police, uh, you know, regalia or something like that. So, so yes, they've got uh, some men dressed in a very sort of like 12-year-old's idea of what someone from the Middle East would would wear. The girls are dressed as, uh, you know, um, pleasure princesses from some sort of harem. And then, yes, the vultures as uh, as cops. And <laughs> they just go to, to PPP that way. And they storm the headquarters. <laughs> yeah, their, their Arab chic outfits um, are very reminiscent of what Mark Proch is wearing in the On Cinema Decker spinoff um, in terms of it's like, so if you have an idea of what, like, what a contemporary, you know, conservative media would represent uh, a man from the Middle East and an oil baron of sorts, um, that's how these uh, schmucks from, <laughs> from Joe Super Duper uh, dress up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there is a moment of reflexive humor when they get off the elevator uh, at PPP and a real oil chic says in subtitled captions, if those Arabs are real, I'll eat my camel. So <laughs> making a joke about their offensive costumes with a, a stereotyped uh, comment itself. You gotta love... The doubling down there. Yeah, just... Totally. Yeah. <laughs> that was a that was another very charged moment uh, for that poor interviewer in the uh, commentary track. Jesus. Where as we're like being led into the scene, the only thing he can think to say is like, "Oh, well, this isn't you know necessarily a, a PC anymore, huh?" And then Joel like essentially cuts him off, saying like, "Listen, we all think it's funny. This is funny. It's a nice movie. It's just nice. And this is funny. Every the two of us here, we like this." This is funny. And he's just like, ah, okay, Joel. <laughs> you know, he doesn't know, doesn't know how to react or shut the guy down. Oof. Really low rent operation who ever put out the the Blu-ray for this movie. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seems like uh, you'd need a guy like Francesco Rossi to go in there and really like interrogate a, a, a Joel Bender to get to the heart of things, you know, to really. Could you imagine if Francesco Rossi directed this film? <laughs> what do you think it would look like? If he was given the script and said, you have to make a film, you're allowed to make changes. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it probably would have been a little bit more violent, uh, you know, like the 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 octogenarian thugs, you know, they 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 probably would have like killed them when they came to <laughs> yeah. to to Joe. Super At least Duper. one of the girls. Yeah. And I, although, to be honest, I'm not sure that they didn't kill those guys. Uh, they hit him over the head pretty hard with like you know two by fours, and I gotta imagine a man of that age probably wouldn't take much to yeah. like you know crush his skull. Uh, but I, I, you know, Ryan, to answer your question, uh, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Oof. It's true. It's true. Rossi probably wouldn't even understood this if you tried to explain it to him. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, he would have a lot of questions. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. There's one good joke in uh, when they storm the CEO office. 
uh, where, where, you know, they're demanding like, you know, fair business and, and to get what's theirs, you yeah. know, and he, he, he immediately starts backpedaling, ah, our profits are down. And they're like, what's that? And there's a chart, you know, on the wall. That's the profits just going up. And then he tries to like hide it and knocks it off the wall. He flips it over. He's like, right, oh, yeah, right. it's, it's, you're reading it wrong or whatever. So he put that. <laughs> somebody, oh, I can't believe they set it up that way. That's the wrong way. Now, know? Rossi would have understood that joke. That's you know? yes. very true. Well, you know, and to an extent, I guess both films do share a certain sentiment, uh, you know, and it's. It's it's expressed by Matei again in in his own words, you know, documented words. This this uh, this fable, I guess, he liked to tell about you know his philosophy, his approach to to fighting the the power, to fighting these you know corrupt systems who seem to control these things, have these monopolies, these hegemonies. Was the word used? Marsh. You know, he tells the story of the kitten. You know, there's a like a, a bowl of milk and there's two very large dogs, German shepherds, he says, lapping up this this massive bowl of milk. And there's a, a starving kitten that wanders in and wants a little milk, you know, and it approaches the bowl because there's plenty for everyone, you know, plenty to go around. And when the kitten approaches to also start lapping up a bit of the milk, the dogs slap it away. You know, I think that's exactly what we have going on here. You know, there's plenty to go around. Everyone needs gas. Everybody's got to get to work or the mall or wherever you got to go. So there's room for both Mr. Friendly and Joe's Super Duper, right? And I guess in this case, June and the folks at uh, Joe's, they're, they're the kitten. Right, and Mr. Friendly and the the folks at PPP, they're the German shepherds trying to slap them away from the bowl of milk. It's very true. Yeah. And do you know who else thinks that there's plenty of gas to go around? Uh, Willie Wilson, as I'm sure you yeah. both saw today in the news um, to sort of like date this episode of the Gauntlet. Um, yeah, how fortuitous! Oh, yeah, hometown <laughs> hero just passing out gasoline. That's right, causing traffic jams all over the West Side. $200,000 worth of gas. Thank you, Willie. I voted for him in the last election. Yeah. <laughs> I did. No, no better option. I bet Willie's main impetus was he thought he could create a longer gasoline traffic line than the gas pump girls. That was his goal. Yeah, I think he did it, you know. But I got to say, you know, on that note, Andy... It is telling that Gas Pump Girls uh, totally sells out then in the conclusion because the conclusion is not the success and coexistence of Joe's, but rather they have hired Joe to work for Pyramid and demoted Mr. Friendly. So the existing power structure prevails. Yeah, they're class traders. Yeah. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. Matei is trying to create jobs, and, and in the end... You know, June uh, just destroyed a, a hardworking man's life, you know, his job. And that was the end of a beautiful summer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I thought, too, when I was watching it? Like I said, I watched them back to back. So I was like, you know, here's the Matei affair. And, and you know, it just like reignited in, in me like, 
you know, what I really love about, about a certain type of, you know, political cinema. Uh, and, and then when I watched this one, I was thinking to myself, like it was, it was as if I was watching like the, the American oil man's like response to Matei. Like this was like a propaganda film that they directed, you know, to like distract everyone from what Matei was saying, you know, like, Hey, how about gas pump girls? Like it was produced by like Chevron or Texaco or something like that. Yeah. Gas pump girls was produced by that Texas oil man that Matei has dinner with. Yeah. Yeah. Mine as well. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, it, it it did make me laugh. Uh, oh, I uh, laugh. For what it's worth, uh, I I laugh throughout Gaspum Girls. There's a lot of really like bizarre lines too. Like I can't even remember that. I'm looking at my notes of just some of these lines I wrote down. Can't remember the context of some of them. At one point, they're trying to get the vultures to like help them out with some shit, and they have like a really strange line where they say, "I thought vultures fight for their rights." <laughs> And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Fighting for their rights. The rights of vultures. Yeah, June is very sanctimonious. She does accuse them of, quote, attacking everything that's decent. <laughs> <laughs> it's, got a, it's got a couple good zingers in there. Um, some inspired bits. But um, it's certainly something that was cobbled together in the late 70s under the hot, hot California sun. Everyone looks so warm in that movie. Yeah. They, like painfully hot. At times. <laughs> That's something I was thinking about, too. Yeah, so it was a, you know, it was a radical departure from Matei. It was a crazy collision. And um, I guess, you know, this is these, this was our vision of oil, Marsh. It has a storied history in cinema. What, what is one that really, what's, what's, what's an oil well you like to swim around in? When I think about oil movies, I think about... Douglas Sirk's Written on the Wind from 1956, one of Sirk's classic melodramas, colorful and starring Rock Hudson, among many others. And it is, uh, you know, a, a messy melodrama about a Texas oil family full of dysfunction and alcoholism and self-destructive behavior and Dorothy Malone going nuts. Um, and it opens very famously, if you recall, with Robert Stack tearing through the oil fields of Texas in his fancy-ass toy sports car, hammered, you know? What a way to open a movie, right? Yeah, it's great. Everyone should check it out. And uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot, a lot of depictions of oil, but... That one, you know, it's mostly depictions, of course, of people uh, being out of control. Great film. Check it out. Absolutely. It was my topic this week. And next week, it is once again Andy's topic. What do you have for us this time? Well, you know, as I, I alluded to the Matei affair and my choice of the Matei affair was, you know, a sort of personal one for me on a certain level, you know, and it... it uh, it, it touched off a lot of memories of, of people I, I know and, and have relationships with and, and actors I like and directors I like. And, and so, you know, specifically, seeing John Maria Volante in a film and thinking of Alex Cox and our relationship... Uh, it got me in in a sort of mindset where I was thinking also of 
all these great performances Volante had in spaghetti westerns. So I have to admit, when I was watching the Matei Affair, I suddenly got a taste for some more spaghetti, if you will. So I think, you know, in a way that we did with our deep dive into another type of Italian cinema I really like, the Giallo films, uh, let's take another dive into uh, a subgenre, if you will, a style of Italian cinema, the spaghetti western. So let's have a little bit more spaghetti next week. What do you say? Yum, yum. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Mr. Matei wants me to tell you now a story thinks it represents our situation. Uh, <clears throat> there is this bunch of big dogs, they are having soup and there is soup for everyone. But there is a small kitten on the side, he would like to take part in it, but there is this big dog that with just one move throws the kitten away and doing so breaks the spine of the little kitten you see. We think we are, we've been the kitten for too long. Either we get out of the scene or we have to go. We don't want to be the kitten anymore. Go ahead.